So on the 8th of December, 1995, <clears throat> a French journalist and author by the name of Jean-Dominique Balbi was driving his son to a theatre performance when he suffered a huge seizure behind the wheel of his car and went into a coma for around about three weeks. When he woke up, he was given probably the worst possible news um, that he'd been diagnosed with an extremely rare condition known as pseudocoma or locked-in syndrome. Put simply, it's the complete paralysis of every muscle in the body, save its ability to blink and move the eyes. Um, however, whilst the victim's body sort of shuts down, their mental faculties remain intact, um, which is why it's called locked-in syndrome. You're literally locked inside your own body. Now, prior to his accident, Mr. Bowby had been a celebrated journalist um, and editor of the famous Elle magazine. Um, and he'd already signed on to publish a memoir um, until his illness would presumably end his career. But through a method known as partner-assisted scanning, um, where a therapist would sit with him and repeatedly recite the alphabet until he blinked at the desired letter, he managed to complete his entire memoir, which became known as The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It uh, went on to become a European bestseller. Um, I'm sure some of you might have seen the film, uh, which grossed millions at the box office. Now, I'm sure that once Mr. Balby woke up in hospital, pretty much everyone, including himself, might have given up hope of him ever achieving anything significant in his life ever again. But through persistence and determination, he was able to achieve something that nobody thought possible. And kind of when I was reading Zechariah chapter 4, which we had read for us, it sort of put me in mind of this story in a slightly strange way. Because if, as you read chapter 4 and you look at some of the context surrounding it, you see God's people at this time suffering from something of a spiritual paralysis. But rather than through any human determination or intervention, what we see is the people achieving something hugely significant through the will and determination of God Almighty. So we're into a new year now, we're 2023. I don't know how you're feeling about it. Uh, maybe you feel like 2023 is going to be your year and you're going to absolutely crush it. Maybe you feel like 2023 needs to bring about some changes in your life. Or perhaps you feel a little bit like Mr. Balby, sort of powerless and a bit useless, faced with the, the challenge that lies ahead. But either as a church or as individuals, my hope today that through looking at Zechariah chapter 4, we might get a reminder that God's love for us and his purposes for us do not depend on what's gone before and do not depend on how capable we are or how capable we feel. So just to provide a little bit of context then for, for where we've landed in the Old Testament, Zechariah is prophesying around about 500 B.C., and uh, in a time known as the Second Temple Period. Um, he was a contemporary of other, what we call minor prophets um, in the Old Testament. Uh, and he ministered to this fella with a slightly dodgy name, which I'm definitely going to trip over at some point during this talk, Zerubbabel. Um, now, Zerubbabel was tasked with leading the people at this time, specifically with the construction of the Second Temple. 
So if you remember the story, God's people get taken into exile by the Babylonians in one of the darkest moments in their history. And after a few years, Persia takes over from Babylon and they're finally allowed to return home. But crucially, not as they once were. And as they return home, they have to deal with something that they haven't really experienced before on any great scale, which is life as a puppet state. Now, they're coming home, but they're still very much under the control of the Persian Empire. And even though, even though they're on their way back, within this landscape, they are tasked with maintaining a specific mandate from God, which is to return to him spiritually and to rebuild the temple that was previously destroyed. So there's external pressures on God's people at this time, but we also know from reading Zechariah that the spiritual condition of the people was not in a good place. If you go back to Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 4, it tells us that there's still a risk that God's people will fall back into the rebellion which led them into exile in the first place. And there's a risk that this internal pre external pressure will compromise their faith and cause them to sort of cave in, if you like. So they arrive back with this task to rebuild the temple, and the foundations are initially laid quite quickly. Presumably, enthusiasm was initially quite high, but with their new status as a puppet state, political complications arise, and the work on the temple eventually grinds to a halt. Slowly, the people begin to doubt the value of full obedience and faithfulness to God, and they become paralyzed and stagnant in their faith. So this is the context at which point Zechariah enters the story and through a series of visions that God gives him, which are pretty weird, I'm not going to lie, as you probably already picked up, um, God is going to speak to the people and tell them what he feels about the situation and where they find themselves. So let's dive in again then um, and look at our first point, which I've called forgiven and restored. We'll go from verse 1. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. And there are two olive trees by it, one to the right of the bowl, one to the left. <clears throat> so if you're struggling like me to picture what this might have looked like, I don't know if you're familiar with the traditional Jewish menorah. It's, it's seen quite often in Jewish iconography, this kind of seven-pronged lampstand. But instead of needing to be supplied with oil, which back in the day would have been done by temple attendants, like constantly on rotation, topping it up, this particular lampstand receives a continuous supply of oil from the two olive trees which sit either side of it, which keep it burning continually. We see later on in the chapter that these two olive trees represent the Lord's anointed ones, commonly thought of to be Zerubbabel himself and Joshua the high priest, the two who were sort of at the forefront of the rebuilding process. Now, to our ears, that, that sounds a bit strange. Um, even Zechariah doesn't know what's going on half the time. Um, and he says clearly in verse 4 that he doesn't know what the vision means. And after some further conversation with the angel who reveals the vision, he gets something of an explanation in the second half of verse 10, 
where we learn that the seven prongs of the lamp represent the seven eyes of the Lord, which patrol the earth. Still not getting any straightforward. But we commonly know that the number seven represents what we call biblical perfection. So if I was to kind of sum it up in a nutshell, what we have a representation of here is a perfect and watchful God. If you went again back to chapter one, you'd see this idea fleshed out again in another vision um, where the Lord sends an angel to patrol the earth and be his eyes, as it were. And when the angel reports back what he's seen, he's moved to plead with God about when he will break his silence and have mercy on the people in, in exile. And God responds to the angel and declares that he is jealous for his people and he will bring them back to himself. So God's watchfulness does not equate to apathy. Now, even despite everything that's happened, God's desire for relationship with his people has not wavered at all. So we have this lampstand with seven eyes. God is watching and he has a plan to resume relationship with his people. A golden lampstand was a really important feature of temples that had gone before. We read about the lampstand in the original temple being crafted in Exodus 25. Similarly, you can go to 2 Chronicles and see the beautiful lampstand that adorns Solomon's temple. And here, the lampstand is burning again in the construction of the newest temple. The people gave sacrificially to see the temple built way back in Exodus as the relationship starts off well. But as we know through the years, the relationship between God and his people gets messed up. Bad kings and judges come and go until God finally sends the people into exile for their rebellion. But despite all of this, God is still watchful and he desires to bring his people back despite everything. It's really beautifully illustrated in the chapter straight before this one, if you read chapter 3. We won't go into it in any great detail, but there's another really lovely vision of God removing the filthy, sin-stained clothes of his people and replacing them with clean garments. So although weak and compromised, the people who returned from exile were forgiven and restored. And as a representation of this, God was determined to see the temple rebuilt, and presumably for a shiny new lampstand to adorn it. So I hope that this can be an encouragement to us today. Book of Romans tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like the people of Israel, God came into relationship with us of his own accord. So he will be pleased to guide us on the journey, even though we repeatedly fall away from him into disobedience. And there will almost certainly be times, I'm sure many of you can attest to this, when God seems silent and absent. But he is never apathetic. And if we trust in him for the forgiveness of sin, he will always bring us back. No matter how weak we may feel, no matter how ineffectual, he will keep you steadfast. Don't think your sins or your weaknesses will get in the way of his purposes. Because God had a purpose for you before the foundation of the world. So, skipping on to verse 6. It says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by power, nor might, 
but by my spirit, declares the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace to it. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now, if you look carefully at those few verses, you might notice something of a paradox going on. As we read verse 6, it's only by the Spirit of the Lord that the task of rebuilding will be accomplished. But then verse 9 tells us that it's actually the hands of Zerubbabel that are going to start and finish the work that needs doing. So there's a kind of duality that exists here. God is in ultimate control, but the people under Zerubbabel still have the task to complete. But it's at this point in the story that the people are evidently in a position where they need some encouragement and some clarity. They're doubting whether or not they should carry on. Otherwise, God wouldn't need to remind them to trust him. I think God's message is really clear. I'm in control. The temple's going to get finished. So get off your backside and grab a shovel and finish the work. You know, you can read about the rebuild in the first few chapters of Ezra. You know, the rebuilding of the temple and the kingdom was not an easy one. The people were met with mighty opposition, as we've spoken about. But the work does get completed in Ezra chapter 6 against seemingly insurmountable odds. I don't know about you, but I can sympathize with the Israelites a little bit here. Um, I'm sure most of us can speak of a time when we've been at a crossroads in our faith journey a little bit. Should I do this or should I go do that? Should I go this way? Should I go that way? Should we carry on rebuilding the temple or should we just sack it off and give it up as a bad idea? God has told them in no uncertain terms that this needs doing and yet they still are doubtful. And likewise for us, I think we often muddy the waters when it comes to the will of God and what he wants us to do. There's been an awful lot said over the centuries about what is or isn't the will of God. You know, some terrible things have been done under the guise of the will of God. So I looked at this and I took a bit of a troll through the index of my study Bible uh, and I found 13 references in Scripture to the will of God. And I only found two that referred to practical living, i.e. it's the will of God for you to do something specific. Uh, They both come from Thessalonians. Um, I'll just read one of them quickly, which comes from 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, Make sure that no one pays back evil for evil, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, to me, that seems refreshingly simple. You know, God's will is not a puzzle that we have to try and decipher. You know, pray, encourage each other, live good lives, give thanks, keep building in Zechariah's case. You know, it's not complicated. You know, I can almost picture Zechariah sort of standing in front of the people with his arms out going, did I tell you to stop digging? What's, what's going on? You know, well, you know, the Persians might come in and destroy it and this might happen and that might happen. Never mind that. Carry on. So as we approach 2023, I want us to be encouraged to carry on, to keep building, as it were. Doubts are going to creep in. Things are going to try to derail you. 
I would encourage us all to keep things simple and stick to what we know God wants us to do. Through Zechariah's prophecy, Zerubbabel and the people were empowered to get on with it and to finish the work. So let's get on with it. And let's focus on the work that we've been called to and not allow ourselves to become paralyzed and stagnant in our faith. And lastly, number three, I call it silencing the doubted. Go from verse 10. <clears throat> For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice to see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. I think by the time we get to verse 10 in this text, we're, we're getting to the heart of the issue. We're getting to the heart of the problem with the Israelites, if you like. You know, evidently, the doubts people felt about what they should do or whether the temple would get finished stemmed from them putting their confidence in the wrong place. You know, think back to Mr. Bowie. There was no way any rational mind would have given him a chance of constructing a sentence, let alone a book. And like Mr. Balby, and despite Zechariah's encouragement, the people appeared on the surface to be powerless. Now, if you weren't powerful in the ancient world, if you couldn't display your power, you were nobody. If you go back to Ezra chapter 4, King Artaxerxes is encouraged to ban the building of the temple because it will make him appear weak. He's encouraged to consider it as an act of sedition that will be a threat to his power. Now, it's the same tale retold that we get with Nebuchadnezzar. It's the same reason that early Christians were persecuted for pay, failing to pay homage to Caesar. We desire as human beings to dominate one another and to rise above our peers and appear more significant than those around us. You know, for the Old Testament kings, it was this desire to be remembered that's why they, they built all these elaborate statues and monuments to themselves, I mean, in the hope that in so doing they would attain in their own minds some type of godlike status. But the people of God have never been encouraged to assert themselves in this way. Now, even though there are times in the Old Testament where God comes in mighty power, it's almost always in contrast to human weakness. You know, and the Israelites listening to Zechariah. I'm sure I would have known all those old stories, you know, about the flight from Egypt and the battles in Joshua and how David became king and all those other stories where God sided with the little guy. But evidently still, there were still some among the Israelites who despised the day of small things. They considered their apparent powerlessness as a reason to be downhearted. You know, as, as in their minds, you can only assume that the building of the temple and the success of the build stood or fell on their own strength. Can you sympathize with that? Do we think like this? I would argue as a, a 21st century church, we can still fall into this trap. You know, we consider the quality of our words or the type of events we run or the quality of the coffee that we serve as somehow a vital ingredient to the spread of the gospel message. You know, often we see famous preachers or, you know, like churches that appear to be successful and we might see like the, the magnetic personality of the minister or the, the numbers in the seats or the vibe of the church. You know, we, we might be fooled into thinking that's the reason why it's successful. 
It's not our fancy words or the persuasiveness of our arguments or how many bodies we get through the door or even how much money we've got in the bank that's going to accomplish God's purposes. I'm certainly not saying that we don't need to think carefully about how we do ministry, but I would argue that we still struggle to apply God's way of thinking on a practical level. The message of Zechariah is abundantly clear, verse 6. Not by power or might, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. If I can give you a little bit of an illustration of this. Um, the house that we're living in now, I moved into about 18 months ago. Um, and my next door neighbour is an elderly chap. He's, he's very sadly terminally ill. Uh, and as myself and Holly sort of got talking to, to him and his family, I kind of got fixated on this idea that if he's going to hear the gospel message, it's got to be from me. I kind of took on this, I don't know, like Messiah complex or something. And I sort of debilitated about it. Um, and I let opportunities come and go um, until finally I was, uh, I was out one day. We sort of share a privet hedge between our two houses. And I was out, out helping his wife trim the hedge. And we got chatting uh, and I sort of plucked up the courage to say something really feeble like, you know, I'm a Christian. I will pray for your husband. Um, his wife said to me that she'd been a Christian most of her life <laughs> and had been ministering to him, you know, every day. And I sort of felt God saying to me, you know, just get back in your box, forget about it, you know, leave this up to me, you know. I despised the day of small things in my own way because I felt in my head that this man hearing the good news of Jesus was entirely dependent on me and my words. You know, again, I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying that we don't need to bother having heart for the lost. We shouldn't be fervent in spreading the good news. And verse 9, Zerubbabel still had to lay the stones. The work still needed doing. But the people had despised their smallness because they thought success depended on them. I don't know about you, but I can feel pretty small sometimes. You know, when I walk into work on Tuesday morning, and I'm again engulfed in this environment where people don't know God. They don't really care whether I'm a Christian or not. And I feel this sort of temptation to speak and act like I don't know Jesus because it's just easier that way. Very quickly, I start to feel small and a little bit useless. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. But here in verse 10, how does God respond to those in this frame of mind? Does God say to those who despise the day of small things that he will chastise them, that he's going to rub their noses in it for their lack of faith? No, he says they're going to rejoice to see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. In other words, they're going to rejoice to see the, the temple completed and their home restored. Now, even after the punishment and exile, God is still determined to have a people for himself. And rather than punishing their lack of faith, he encourages them brings them to rejoicing. I was thinking of a way I could sort of sum this up in a nifty sentence. Um, and reading this again really put me in mind of the Apostle Peter and his story in the New Testament. You know, what an example of someone who despised the day of small things and was brought to rejoicing. You know, like the people of Israel, he had given up hope that Jesus could accomplish what he promised. So he denied him when things seemed at their darkest and Jesus seemed at his most powerless. And after Jesus is raised from the dead in John 25, he 
doesn't hold Peter's denial against him. He restores Peter lovingly and turns his hands to work and gives him a job to complete, ministering to God's people. And just as the people in verse 7 rejoice to see the capstone installed in the completed temple, Peter becomes a rock of sorts on which the foundation of the New Testament church is built. God will forgive us when our faith wavers. He will bring us back when we drift and he turns our hands to do his will. And he will achieve his purposes with or without us. I think that much is clear from the text, but he invites you to come with him and be part of it. And I hope that this fact can serve to be a weight off your shoulders in one respect. So how to sum up them? Well, after everything that we've been talking about, after everything I've said, it might seem strange to say that the temple that they're building actually didn't last very long. It was leveled by the Romans in AD 70, shortly before Jesus declares himself the fulfillment of the temple. The stones were never the point. God tells us in Scripture he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. The temple, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, it was all a precursor to something far more significant. Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of how we are to share relationship with God. This is what it was all building towards. This is what Jesus died to accomplish. He wants to be in relationship with you. God went to great lengths to see the second temple built so the people could share relationship with him. But he went to the greatest possible length, giving his son so that we could have a relationship with him and have it to its absolute fullest.